Support for The Motley Fool and Industry Focus comes from our friends at MyIDCare Identity Protection. The Equifax breach gave identity thieves access to the personal data of millions of Americans. Now is the time to protect yourself. 25 million Americans rely on MyIDCare, and right now our listeners can get 15% off. Go to MyIDCare.com fool to enroll. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Tuesday, December 5th, which means the consumer and retail sectors are on tap for today. I'm your host, Vincent Chen, and I'm joined via Skype by SeniorFool.com contributor Asit Sharma, who's calling in from Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Asit, good to have you with us. Thanks. Always fun to be back, Vince and listeners. What up, fools? So Asit, I'm going to start us off with an update on a story that we first discussed three weeks ago. So on November 14th, you and I talked about the buyout offer Buffalo Wild Wings, which uh, they received that from private equity firm Work Capital. So on that show, we covered some of the challenges that B-dubs has encountered the past few years, things like declining comps, weak traffic, things that have affected uh, a lot of the restaurant industry. And then over the summer, there was a battle for control between management and activist investor Mercado Capital. Uh, CEO Sally Smith uh, would soon be stepping down. Uh, Mercado, Mercado was pushing the company to refranchise its stores. But now we have details of the official offer from More Capital, um, or I should clarify, one of its portfolio restaurant brands, uh, Arby's Restaurant Group. And the two companies have agreed to a deal at a cash offer price of $157 per share, which represents a 34% premium to the last closing price of beat-up stock before all these deal rumors made the news. And the board of directors at both companies have signed off. Mercado Capital supports the deal. They have a 6.4% stake in Buffalo Wild Wings. So, are you surprised at all that Mercado was so quick to hop on board with this deal after they fought with management for almost a year to win board seats, to win greater control of the company's future direction, and now they're just selling out, or ready to sell out, just a few months later? I'm not surprised at all, Vince. I think execution is always harder than pointing out what a problem is. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you're growing up and your parents are ferrying you around, and you're in the back seat, you can't wait till the day that you get into the driver's seat. But when you're in the driver's seat in traffic, things change those first few months. And I think what Mercado sees is that um, Rourke Capital, which owns Arby's, which is actually going to be the owner of the new uh, company, they are an experienced restaurant operator and mm-hmm. have the tools to address some of the problems that we've been talking about, including uh, the traffic, uh, how to deal with soaring wing prices. This is something that is best left in the hands of a company which can execute day to day and is in the field already. So I'm I'm really not surprised that they're going along with this. Yeah, part of me wonders, you know, after Marcano um, spent so much time and effort uh, forcing Sally Smith out of the company, um, give overall giving the management team there a lot of grief over uh, the work that they've done, um, and then some of the roadblocks they've hit in terms of challenges and headwinds for this industry. And then, you know, they made promises of smoother operations, stronger financials. And, you know, was this all kind of bluster on, on Mercado Capital's part, kind of what you mentioned in terms of actually being in the driver's seat? Uh, it's a very different uh, 
it's a very different situation to find yourself in. And Mercado has an average cost basis of $142 per share approximately for their stake. So at $157 per share in this buyout, it's only a 10% return for their investment. And I think this really does come down to the fact that they won their board seats, they started to implement their plan, but maybe realized to turn around this business. And as they previously mentioned, you know, Doubling or tripling the stock price as they believed uh, Buffalo Wild Wings could do in the next few years would not nearly be as simple as they thought. Um, so, last few details for this deal Buffalo Wild Wings will operate as an independent subsidiary and brand uh, under Arby's, as you mentioned. And that's assuming uh, Buffalo Wild Wings shareholders approve the deal. The merger is expected to close in early 2018. And and as a customer, I'm still pretty disappointed. I brought this up before that their Wing Tuesday promotion is now Boneless Tuesday. So if a former B-Dubs customer can dream, I first thing I hope on the to-do list for War Capital and Arby's is to bring back their Wing Tuesday promotion, and they will find they'll find me, um, you know, back in the store as a happy customer. But if we have any other updates uh, on that deal. Other things that come up, uh, we'll be sure to share them with listeners. But the information that we'll be able to get from that company will only decrease as they are taken under the wing of private Arby's. So, our next topic is another company that has not quite found its footing after coming together in a massive deal, and that's Kraft Heinz. So, this is a big food and beverage company with a huge portfolio of brands that our listeners will recognize from grocery store aisles. $100 billion market cap, $26 billion of revenue in the past 12 months. And at the same time, sales growth is negative. Uh, consumer preferences are gradually moving away from the packaged and processed foods that Kraft Heinz is best known for. So, Asit, to kick off our discussion of this company, can you Introduce us to the players because there's some really, uh, I think, important, well-known investors and and leadership behind this company. Who's pulling the strings? Absolutely. Let's go back to 2013. That's the year that an investment company called 3G Capital teamed up with Warren Buffett to acquire the Heinz Company. 3G Capital, Brazilian firm, uh, had they have their fingers everywhere. They are investors in the world's largest alcoholic beverage company, which is Anheuser-Busch InBev. Uh, they own Restaurant Brands International, which is the company uh, in charge of Burger King and Tim Hortons. So this is a very experienced team, which uses Warren Buffett's endless checkbook, boundless checkbook, yeah. to acquire major companies and then improve them. And 3G Capital's whole modus operandi is to cut costs, that is to cut overhead, to budget every quarter from a zero-based budgeting concept. That means you start without really looking backwards. You look at what your current needs are and budget from there. Uh, Manage supply chains that are all about optimizing operations. So these are an experienced group of players. And then at the same time, in 2013, that 3G Capital and Warren Buffett bought the Heinz Company, Kraft, the old grocery uh, store supplier, uh, decided to shave off its most important brand. They call them power brands. So Oreo cookies, Tang, Ritz crackers, those all went into a new company, which investors will be familiar with, now called Mondelez. Mm-hmm. The old grocery business stayed as uh, Kraft. So in 2015, the Heinz Company, now owned by 3G and Warren Buffett, merged with the Kraft Company, 
uh, to create the Kraft Heinz Company, uh, and that was in July of 2015. So this is sort of the history behind the company that we look at today, which has a broad range of condiments, uh, everything, of course, from uh, Kraft uh, mayonnaise to Heinz ketchup and mustard, and plus a whole stable of smaller brands. Yep, and you know Warren Buffett, 3G Capital, uh, they have significant stakes in this combined entity. 3G Capital, their partners, uh, and and a lot of people involved with that firm, they uh, take up major leadership positions at the company, including CEO. And as you mentioned, 3G Capital, known for taking uh, a knife to a comp- any company's cost structure that they become involved with. Management has cut about 1.5 billion dollars of expenses so far since the 2015 merger, and I think that amount is expected to increase to about 1.7 or 1.8 billion dollars by year end. And those efforts have certainly helped the company become more profitable. Uh, their gross mi- margins are wider. Operating margins have expanded, and earnings are uh, their earnings growth is in the double digits. Recently, but uh, the question mark is in terms of their revenue growth. So that has not really ma- uh, materialized since Kraft and Heinz came together. And I think there's a point when investors in the market want to see, for example, the international growth that a lot of people were pointing to when this deal was initially announced. The idea that Heinz could open its overseas channels to craft products. But how do you think the company and management can deliver here? Because in this case, you know, three the three G team. Obviously, uh, they have to rethink their approach a little bit. They've cut costs now, but what about growing that top line? And they've already implemented quite a few changes. Uh, for example, in the leadership structure, there's been uh, there was some new positions and promotions and, and changes in the leadership team at Kraft Heinz that were announced in the last earnings call. So it seems like they're already starting to rethink things a little bit. Yeah, it's a great question that you pose, Vince. Where is this revenue going to come from? The investor expectation ever since 2015 was that Kraft Heinz was going to act as 3G capital companies typically do. So cut overhead costs and then go out and acquire revenue by other companies. Uh, So very shortly in February of this year, very shortly after initial talks with Unilever for a $143 billion deal broke down. Uh, following this, there was no other merger that looked good, either to investors or to Kraft Heinz management. And that's because of some of the headwinds on the industry that you mentioned earlier. Consumer packaged good companies in the food sector having a rough time as grocery shopping changes. People start ordering their groceries online, so they're not in the stores to see the marketing attached to these products. And smaller brands, which have a more sustainable bent, have more natural ingredients are popping up on the shelves when customers do go in. If you look at the potential candidates that uh, Kraft Heinz could conceivably buy, let's take Campbell's Soup, for example. Campbell's Soup is struggling and its revenues are declining, so that doesn't look so great. And other candidates have similar problems. I think Mondelez as well is one that I've often thought could be an interesting merger, but they also struggle with revenue. So the trick for Uh, Kraft Heinz might be for this next year to go back to the drawing board. The one criticism I've had about 3G over the years is that there is no tool for revenue in the playbook. There's every tool for um, making the operations better, but when it comes to growing the top line, 3G companies always look to acquire. And that's why I know Vince, you and I talked briefly last year in a podcast about Anheuser-Busch's mammoth acquisition of SAB Miller. You can't just grow 
until you've acquired every other fish in the industry. Mm-hmm. At some point, you have to learn how to um, increase sales organically on your own. And for this company, I think maybe look to Europe. That's where they've had some success with packaging innovations in condiments across a you know more active consumer, especially in the UK and Western Europe. They can try this year to extend those gains and translate some of those earnings back into the US, which goes back to what you were mentioning, that there are opportunities to take brands in the US into Europe. Me, I would love to see them focus on the business next year. Uh, maybe the last thing they need is to acquire a company and uh, have this whole long process of merger, then finding the synergies, optimizing operations. Go back to basics would be my hope for this company in 2018. Yeah, and everything else that goes along with the integration process. In terms of you know, organic growth, you think about the traditional levers. Um, that a company in this industry might consider. Uh, you mentioned a few of them, but additional marketing, you know, they might innovate with new products, might try and re- revitalize some brands. But those are all things that require investment, um, you know, spending more money, not so much the, the cutting cost playbook that 3G um, has become known for operating with. And, uh, you know, Getting some closing comments from you, Asset. Um, you know, we talked about some of the challenges, their headwinds, the opportunities, things that lie ahead. But the stock trades at about 20 t- 22 times forward earnings right now. Uh, shares are in negative territory year to date, and that's the same as a lot of the other uh, companies, food and beverage companies, packaged goods that are in this industry, like Unilever, Mondelez. We talked about those, Kellogg, General Mills. So they're all in the same boat too. But I guess an investor will probably uh, ask then is about faith in Buffett and the three G capital team, and is that something that you have that you think you know with with such uh, a strong kind of uh, lineup of experience um, in terms of taking over these companies, and they've had a lot of success in the past. Eventually, being able to come through. What do you think? Yeah, that's one persuasive reason for an investor to hang on to this stock is that the bank of Warren Buffett is next door. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of acquisitions, those are always open to Kraft Heinz. It'll just take a little bit of organic growth, some resumption, let's say into uh, the low single digits, and that's not that seems like a very small number. You're talking about one to two percent organic growth, but in this industry, with all the disruption that's going on, that would actually be a very positive sign. If they could hit that next year, it gives investors a rationale to see this combination of higher earnings per share from really good operations and their experience, plus just a little bit of growth in terms of customers wanting to buy these products and demand pulling their products more off the shelves uh, as Heinz enjoyed in past years before all these mergers started. I think you combine just a little bit of resumption with organic growth with what you mentioned, Vince, that what better partner would you want than Warren Buffett in the future? It's still a good stock to hold, but it, for investors who think that maybe it's going to pop back next year, I think we're probably looking at a 2019 story. But certainly not a stock that you, you have to shake out of your portfolio just monitor it, keep an eye, and hopefully next year they will resume some of this top-line growth that investors have been looking for. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Asset. So, next up, we'll be talking about another really interesting business, Etsy. Support for The Motley Fool and Industry Focus comes from our friends at My ID Care Identity Protection. 
The recent Equifax breach exposed the most sensitive and personal data of half the U.S. adult population. Every two seconds, someone becomes a victim of identity fraud. And it's more important than ever to protect yourself from the risk of identity theft, especially during the holidays. Luckily, MyID Care provides concierge-style service and has an incredible 100% success rate for identity recovery. With 24-7 monitoring of your information and $1 million of insurance protection, you can join the 25 million Americans who trust MyID Care and enjoy some peace of mind over the holidays, celebrating with family and friends instead of stressing. Don't wait for your identity to be stolen. MyID Care is offering industry-focused listeners a 15% discount if they sign up today. Just visit myidcare.com slash fool. All right, Asit. Last time that we spoke about Etsy, it was in the context of uh, increasing consumer customization and that trend in the industry. So, listeners, if you've never shopped with Etsy, uh, if you're not as familiar with the name, uh, this is an online marketplace that pairs the company's 1.9 million sellers of handmade and artisan-style goods with over 30 million buyers. And the company makes money by charging sellers transaction fees on items that they sell and in the marketplace, as well as additional fees for services like payment processing, shipping, and promotion. So revenue revenue in the past year came in at $415 million. Stock has only been trading publicly for about two and a half years. For most of that period, returns were poor, and the stock traded below its initial offering price. But year-to-date, the stock is now up over 50%. And if we work our way from the beginning of the year, there's been some big changes at Etsy that I think contributed to the very bullish rally. And that included some leadership changes, uh, some layoffs, uh, and changes in terms of the organizational structure. What happened, Asit? So, in May of this year, a board member, Josh Silverman, uh, was appointed CEO. And the current CEO who had shepherded the company through its um, IPO process, and who was the former CTO, Chief Technical, Technical Officer, um, Chad Dickerson had to resign. And at the same time, the company, uh, same day, the company laid off, I believe, over 100 employees and has had at least one round since then. And Chad Dickerson represented the best aspirations of Etsy. Uh, the company was a certified B Corp, Business Corp, which is a really hard certification that points to a sustainable business ethos. Uh, Patagonia has the same certification. It was known to be an extremely accommodating work environment, and it was a company that proposed to, to change the world in that when Etsy went public, they wanted to both make money on the bottom line, but push for social justice and sustainable goods, sustainable trade. The problem was that the company was spending a lot of money on marketing to increase its gross merchandise sales, that volume of business that Etsy takes a slice off of each transaction. Mm -hmm. And so Silverman, who was a board member, as I mentioned, was one of the people who was consistently questioning Etsy's business practices and its viability as an ongoing concern if you look over long-term horizons. So he was appointed in May. And since then, um, just look at the most recent quarter, the company has increased uh, the gross merchandise sales 13% to $766 million. Revenue is up 22% to $106 million this quarter versus the prior year. And Etsy had net income of $26 million in its most recent quarter versus a prior year loss of $2 million. So it's had positive change out of the gate since May. The question for some investors who wanted to both profit from the stock and participate in this feel-good story is, has the original 
mission of Etsy been lost and is it now more of a corporate style entity? And, and Vince, I know you shop on Etsy and I've shopped on Etsy before. What, what are your thoughts? I think this is a really tough position because it comes down to a balancing act of kind of the values and the ethos, uh, as you mentioned, that the company, the workforce wanted to maintain. Um, they often boast, for example, in their financial statements about, uh, in terms of facts about the business, how a large majority of sellers uh, on Etsy are women and, and trying to empower um, you know, the sellers on their platform to be entrepreneurs and to build up these businesses and the supplemental income or and maybe become their primary uh, their primary career or whatever it is that they're working on. But at the same time, in the in terms of when Silverman took over in May, the six months or so before then, there was already tons of pressure growing on the company uh, to not only increase its top line growth, but to also potentially even seek out other strategic alternatives. For example, putting itself for, up for sale um, as a result of certain uh, activist investors and hedge funds taking positions in the company. So, ultimately, when uh, Silverman took over from the prior CEO Chad Dickerson. You know, he applied a much more conventional, uh, probably uh, guidelines and practices to lead the company into the next stage. And as you mentioned, with the latest quarterly results, they seem to be working. Two strong quarterly reports now, uh, accelerating growth for uh, some of those really important company metrics like total revenue, gross merchandise sales. They've had positive earnings for two quarters. Uh, they're growing their number of sellers and buyers on the site, but. This all comes at a price, and Asit, you shared a great article with me uh, before the show from the New York Times that covered some of the changes, both good or bad, depending on who you ask, that Silverman implemented when he took over as CEO. And I think, despite the stock gains and the improving results we've seen from his initial six-month tenure, he seems to be pretty controversial within the company itself. Yeah, I think that there are supporters of his style who see that there's new accountability at Etsy and there's more risk taking the culture. This was brought out in the New York Times article. Uh, but there are also those who feel that the way the company conducts business doesn't look much different than other e-commerce companies that we're used to analyzing on the show and that investors are familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to pick out one thing from the recent uh, conference called Transcript that Etsy had, which to me crystallizes sort of this push and pull between what employees want to see in the company's best iteration and the realities of the business world. So this is Josh Silverman talking to analysts uh, recently, I think no beginning of November. He says, we launched scarcity badge to alert buyers when items are only available in limited quantities by creating a sense of urgency. We can leverage our unique inventory and nudge buyers along the shopping journey. We think scarcity badges are a particularly powerful tool for Etsy, given that so much of our inventory is made up of unique special items that, by nature, are scarce. It also is a response to a common buyer frustration, finding an item in favor of it only to come back later and find that it has already been sold. You can look at this statement in a number of ways. It's like a Rorschach test. So if you're an investor, that sounds great because you are creating that sense of urgency which forces someone to click buy the product and the sale is complete. But if you are an Etsy employee and you hear this, this, this sounds like the kind of practice that 
you didn't sign up for because it is preying on this thing we're all vulnerable to on the internet, which is the marketing messages, the feeling that you have to buy now. That isn't part of the original uh, philosophy of Etsy. It's hard to say. Uh, does this mean that the company is going to totally divorce itself from those founding principles? Probably not, but it reflects the reality. And uh, listeners, if you want to look up that article from New York Times, very nice article. Uh, I think it was the 25th of November. And it, one point that more point that comes to mind about Etsy is that maybe it should have just stayed private, although it's always hard to raise that capital. Um, I have met Chad Dickerson a couple of times uh, through he's actually through marriage related to a close friend of my wife's. And he's a charismatic, very sharp guy. Uh, very capable, obviously exudes that kind of um, holistic new CEO uh, of the next sort, the kind that balances financial acumen with caring. And if they had stayed private, I think they could have done very well under someone like him. But going public changes everything because you're not just accountable to those employees and private investors. You're accountable to you listeners who are investing in the stock. And that's a different ballgame. And we've talked before about the the changes once a company has gone public and they need to meet the demands of Wall Street and to succeed in that kind of world where a lot of times you're going quarter by quarter and we're not encouraging that viewpoint, but that is uh, the, a viewpoint that a lot of investors take. We, of course, uh, encourage you to take a longer term view and maybe that's exactly what uh, a lot of stakeholders in this company feel would have been preferable. Um, Compared to you know, quote unquote, selling its soul in order to meet the demands of being a public company, but overall, I think the Etsy Etsy has proven that it's proven itself as a viable and, and pretty compelling business. Um, there were talks previously about how Amazon Handmade, which is a, a kind of a direct competitor in terms of these uh, more artisan uh, craft marketplace that Amazon was opening, would essentially put Etsy out of business. They've thrived uh, despite that. And as a frequent Etsy shopper myself, I think the company really presents a unique vibe that stands out from other marketplaces like eBay. Um, so, any last comments from you, Asset, um, and maybe thoughts on what lies ahead for the company? One of the things that Silverman has done is to curtail the international expansion that Dickerson was really pushing. He wanted to reach, that is, Dickerson wanted to reach a lot of women in impoverished countries and also do great business by opening up in different parts of the globe. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see that resume over the long term after a little bit more stabilization of the balance sheet. So the company has a lot of opportunity. And let's face it, it's better than most in terms of its social goals and sustainability still. It hasn't totally left behind why it was founded to help people make a living as well as provide beautiful products. And you know, like you, I think the site is special. I think the products are unique and special. So it, it should do well over the long term. You can still buy it and feel fairly good about yourself. All right. Well, thank you, Asif, for joining us. Always a pleasure. And thanks, fools, for listening. Uh, Austin Morgan is the producer for Industry Focus. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Fool on. Mm-hmm.